1: Let's talk about the financial crisis going on over at the Vancouver Aquarium. I mean, this is this this story has affected so many aspects of our life. It's like every every day we're newing we're learning something new about the devastation this is causing. The Vancouver Aquarium been in Stanley Park for over sixty years, a beloved institution for many in our city, and the officials over there are saying they could shut down permanently within a couple of months if they do not get. Help! Have a listen to this. This is Lasse Gustafsson. He is the CEO of the aquarium.
2: So since the 17th of March, we've cut all costs that we possibly can cut, um, including laying off, hopefully temporarily, 343 people, asking others to go down, working part time. Uh, But unlike many other organizations, we can't switch off the light, lock the door and go home. Uh, we have 70,000 animals in the aquarium. And we love them and we care for them, and we're not going to leave them alone. Okay. The
1: aquarium is not the only uh, in- institution like this in Canada that is struggling. There are other zoos and aquariums in Canada that are facing the same problems. Let's check in now with Jim Facet. He is the executive director of Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums, and I'm very pleased you could take the time. Jim, thank you for coming on.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Okay, tell me about what's going on with um, zoos and aquariums across Canada. Are they all struggling?
4: Short answer is yes. Um, they've all gone through a similar uh, exercise that the Vancouver Aquarium has had to go through. And when this first hit uh, in the middle of last month, uh, they've all gone through a sort of what do we need and what do we don't, don't we need. And so every single zoo and aquarium across Canada that's a member of ours that's accredited uh, has laid off staff. However, in doing so, they've also maintained staffing levels to ensure that the quality of care to the animals in which they have is maintained. So that, we can assure you, is still uh, at the level as, as it was pre-pandemic, if you will. Uh, that said, um, and I think the Vancouver Aquarium has, has hit the nail on the head in its messaging, in that the financial reality of these institutions uh, cannot be ignored.
1: Okay, how many zoos and aquariums are there across Canada that you guys represent?
4: Uh, there are 31 accredited zoos and aquariums wow. across Canada that we represent.
1: Wow, that, that's a lot. They're all they're all shut down, right? Yes, they are. Yeah. Okay. You know, you anticipated one of my questions. are like, what's going on with these animals? So they are they they are still all maintaining staff behind the scenes yeah. to, to care for these animals, but are a lot of them facing like like as with the, the with every facility shut down and no income coming in from gate receipts and gift shop receipts what is the financial situation facing these institutions and could some of them are some of them facing shut being shut down
2: the financial
4: reality of them all is is no different than any other uh, small or medium-sized enterprise uh they are all not-for-profit registered charities so they have structured themselves such that there is some reserve monies however uh, this can't go on much longer, and they can't maintain this level uh, of, of activities where they need to for, for, a great, for much longer. It, it's quite it's dire uh, in some institutions, not as much in, in others. You know, they, they say in the aviation world, you've been to one airport, you've been to one airport, you've been to one aquarium or zoo, you've been to one aquarium or a zoo. Each is structured just a little bit differently in terms of ownership structure. The size of them differ. You know, you've got the, the, the Vancouver Aquarium, the Vancouver Zoo, uh, Toronto Zoo, Calgary. You know, these are some of the larger institutions across Canada. Their costs are reflect that, of course. Their, their animals are much larger, and they have um, larger uh, budgets that they have to maintain. Having said that, right in B.C., I know Kamloops, you know, their, uh, their burn rate a month on just food alone is about $10,000 for the size of zoo that that is. And that's a lot of money. And that's over and above the donations that they might get. So it's very real. Uh, having said that, we as an organization at CASA, uh, we have an accreditation that we have to maintain, a level of standard of care that we're pursuing to maintain that. So we're working very hard with our members across Canada to ensure that that continues.
1: Speaking of Jim Fassett, Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums, you mentioned some of the more f- familiar institutions in the country, like some of the more famous zoos, for example, the Toronto Zoo, maybe the most famous one in Canada, maybe the, perhaps one of the largest, if not the, the largest. I know they're in trouble, right? What's happening at the Toronto Zoo?
4: Yeah, in, in Toronto, they have uh, reached out uh, to their community and they've actually set up a, a, a GoFundMe right now uh, with, with a goal. I can't remember exactly what that number is. Uh, but you know they'll spend just on feed and food alone for their animals one million dollars a year. That's just one small expense that they have, that's usually covered off by parking and uh, and gate receipts.
1: Right. That's
4: not happening right now, so they're appealing to the public, uh, as is Calgary at the moment, as is the Vancouver Aquarium.
1: Right. What uh, would you,
4: for, Jim, some, for some assistance?
1: What would you say to people who who listen to these appeals? We got the Vancouver Aquarium asking for government assistance all these zoos across the country, many of them asking for government assistance as well. What, what, do we, what would you say to people who say, look, this should be like a low priority. Everybody's hurting. There's all kinds of businesses being shut down. Why should taxpayers bail out an aquarium or a zoo?
4: I think when you look at the role of the zoo and the aquarium plays in our society, that becomes a very important factor uh, going forward about what does and does get hopefully uh, assisted by government's you know, zoos and aquariums ha- have a real opportunity here when we come out of this wh- in whatever form that might look like going forward to be a healing process within the community, an avenue where people can go to, where they can feel one with, with nature, where they can participate in conservation. You know, the, the, the connection between the animals, the aquariums and the zoos and the community is unbreakable. It's really quite astounding when you go community to community and you really look at how attached, the local community, is to their respective zoo and aquarium. It's really quite wonderful. It's a a great thing that we have in Canada. It's a great big part of our mosaic that we call Canada. And so I think going forward, if you're looking at why, I think the big reason is why, because we can play a real role in coming out of this uh, as one, coming out of this together, and really helping that healing process. And I don't mean to be cliche about it. I do truly
1: mean it. Thank you for coming on today.
4: Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Camille Labchuk is an animal rights lawyer. She's executive director of Animal Justice. Camille, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's my pleasure, Mike. I know you heard that interview there with Jim Fesse. What did you think about what he said?
5: I think he's living in an alternate reality. I, I heard not a single mention of the suffering and the exploitation that animals in zoos endure just so people can look at them behind bars. Well, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, sure be I'm sure coolest. he didn't.
1: I'm sure he didn't mention that because he doesn't think his animals are being abused and, and suffering.
5: Well, then I think that means that he's got blinders on. Uh, you know, we're in a situation where zoos are already in, in trouble. Zoos and aquariums are struggling well before this pandemic because they're part of a dying industry. We've got a public that's increasingly not accepting of keeping animals behind closed doors, and behind bars and in tanks, just so people can look at them. And I think that's exactly why the federal government decided to make the groundbreaking move of banning whale and, and uh, dolphin captivity earlier uh, just last year.
1: Okay, do you therefore think, uh, Camille, that the government should not assist the Vancouver Aquarium?
5: I would advocate that any support that they receive, and if they need money to keep those animals alive, then they should get it. But I think what needs to happen is the government needs to say to them, if you're getting funds, you need to start transitioning away from this captive display model and toward a sanctuary model where they rescue animals and house them in a way that's not designed to make them money, but is designed to protect the interests of the animals.
1: But they do that, though, don't they? I mean, the, the, the rescue and rehabilitation programs at the Vancouver Aquarium are pretty impressive. I mean, they save a lot of marine mammals, all kinds of animals.
5: Absolutely. They're one of the few yeah. facilities that actually does have some limited rescue and rehabilitation capacity. I understand their rehab center is currently closed because they've laid off a bunch of staff, which is highly unfortunate. And yeah. that's what they should be focusing on in the future is doing exclusively rescue and rehab Uh, They still do a lot of display of animals for entertainment. They went out kicking and screaming until the very last moment when the government regulated uh, keeping whales and dolphins in captivity. And and just yesterday, their their head bet, Dr. Martin Helena, said on, on CKNW... Uh, that people who oppose whale and dolphin captivity are, are like anti-vaxxers or anti-COVID people. So well, they, I'm, they just I'm, I'm
1: are, glad you, I'm don't glad see you where me- this is going. I'm glad you mentioned that, because uh, let's let's have a listen to that. The, you're right. I mean, that was, an, that was an interesting comment that he made. I guess you could say it that way, but here, here, have a listen to it. This is the head veterinarian for the Vancouver Aquarium, uh, Dr. Martin Helena. He was on yesterday with Jill Bennett. Here's what he said.
6: I think those people are going to say that no matter what news you bring out with. I kind of put them in the same group as anti-vaxxers and the anti-Covidians that are gathering on streets to protest uh, social uh, isolation. So, yeah, I, I disregard those those comments altogether.
1: Okay. how did you, What did you think or how did that make you feel when you heard that, Camille?
5: Well, my, my job was on the floor, especially coming from a vet who should care about the physical and emotional well-being of animals that are I'm confined sure to an Aquarium.
1: I'm sure he does, though.
5: Yeah. But I mean, to say that uh, people like David Suzuki and Jane Goodall, who are major supporters behind the uh, whale and dolphin ban, are are on par with anti-vaxxers who put the the public and all of our lives at risk, that's just uh, tone deaf.
1: I guess guess maybe he's referring to some of the more radical kind of animal rights elements like PETA or whatever. Maybe that's what he was trying to say.
5: I I don't think there's anything radical about having compassion for animals and just not Mm -hmm. wanting to see their freedom taken from them and stuck behind uh, bars or tiny tanks for their entire lives. And I think that's the way the public is going. I think what we're seeing is a massive shift away from this idea that it's okay to confine animals just for entertainment and a push towards changing zoos, changing aquariums, using those facilities, but turning them into sanctuary models. And that's where they should be looking.
1: Let's take a couple of calls here. Susan on the open line. Hi, Susan.
6: Hi, I have your
5: speakerphone. Is that oh, sound okay?
1: You sound okay. Go ahead.
5: Okay, well, I just had a kind of a brainstorm
7: while you were talking that maybe people could, instead of it just being like make charity to the aquarium, they could make a future, uh, like the payment could be for a future time to visit the aquarium or like a year's pass and like gifts, gifts for, you know, future Christmas gifts and um, that like sort ways of thing. Like ways they can if,
1: raise money, you mean? Pardon me? You mean that's a way they could raise some money right now?
7: Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay, Susan, thank you for the call. Oh, Here's but I also, I
7: also yeah. wanted to say that, like, yeah. like Canadian Tire and, and different stores are open. Why couldn't they allow, like, 10 people in at a time or something to the aquarium with well, the physical distancing?
1: Okay, that's an interesting point. What do you think of that, Camille?
5: Uh, You know, I
1: I think we should all stay home. I think it would be completely inappropriate
5: to to open the aquarium to to any visitors right now. I think this is an organization with a $54 million annual budget, and for them not to have set aside a few million dollars for a rainy day or have a disaster or an emergency plan, to me, that's just shocking. It's highly irresponsible.
1: What would you say to, we just got a minute left, but what would you say to the argument that the reason that... The Aquarium can do all the wonderful things that it does in terms of rescuing animals that are injured in the wild and rehabilitating them and doing all this conservation and research is because they have the fund from people who pay admissions and pay for memberships and buy presents in the gift shop and and that helps the animals in the end. We use thirty seconds though.
5: Well, I think if they want to do conservation work, that's great, but they should fund it like the rest of nonprofits in this country do. You don't see humane societies or wilderness associations going into the wild and capturing animals and putting them on display to fund their work. If people believe in the work and they think it's important, they will support it and governments will support it.
1: Camille, thank you for coming on.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, you bet. That is Camille Labchuk. She is an animal rights lawyer. She is with Animal justice. As promised, let's continue talking about ICBC. And you just know that the accident rate in BC is probably dropped through the floor here with so many, so many people are not driving now. So why doesn't ICBC give you a rebate on your auto insurance? Yesterday, the auto insurance monopoly in BC announced that if you cancel your insurance, which a lot of people might be thinking about doing, they will waive the cancellation fee so you won't have to pay 30 bucks to cancel your icbc that's a little underwhelming to me especially after we've been hearing some hype from this government this week that relief was coming for bc drivers now have a listen to this this is uh, david eby the attorney general he's the minister for icbc he was on this morning with Sammy, And here he is explaining the fees that are being removed by ICBC to give drivers a break.
0: Well, there are a number of people who maybe they have two vehicles and they're only using one or maybe they're not using their vehicle at all. They're leaving it at home or they really dramatically change the use of their vehicle. They used to use it for business and now they only use it personally or they're driving less than 5,000 kilometers. So uh, previously, if you uh, needed to change your insurance, there was a, a change fee. Uh, and uh, if you needed to stop your insurance entirely, uh, it, would, it added up to about 50 bucks to cancel and then restart. As well, you had to uh, take your plates in, uh, and then you would be issued new plates when you restarted your insurance. So yesterday, uh, we announced that those fees uh, are removed so you can uh, take the insurance off of a vehicle. Uh, without any charge and restart without any charge. And if you restart your insurance after May 30th, that's when the system changes will be done, you'll actually be able to use your existing plates, uh, which is uh, going to be a time saver and uh, just far more efficient.
1: That's it? That's all you got? Come on. I, I was expecting more than that. The government been hyping this announcement and yeah, that was talk about a bait and switch. That one was. I I was expecting maybe some sort of a rebate like we've seen in other provinces in Canada instead of canceling waiving your cancellation fee. Big whoop. Let's check in with Jazz Joe Hall now. He's the Liberal MLA for Richmond Queensborough. He's the uh, opposition critic for ICBC. Thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. What do you think of this announcement?
8: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It was uh, very disappointing. You know, I was uh, looking forward to the announcement yesterday, and all we got was the waiving of a $30 cancellation fee and a couple of other administrative changes. You know, what I look at, when I look at this issue, I think of it as, first of all, it's a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. And when our citizens citizens look back and say, what did our government do for us? You know on the side of people who lost work that they've got a one-time $2,000 bill them. our small right. business owners have... Uh, programs that have been set up. Now, you can disagree or agree on how much and the government's doing enough. But when we look back and say, what did ICBC do for us? Well, they waived a $30 cancellation. Fee. That's <laughs> oh, yeah. incredibly underwhelming, as you said. And, and it's quite frustrating for me because we are in unprecedented times. You know, people need money in their pockets today and now. You know, after your mortgage or maybe your rent payment, ICBC costs are probably the second highest every month that the, every family has to deal with. And this is how you can get money back into people's pockets quickly. And this is where I think the government has failed. And ultimately, this isn't a public versus private debate. To me, that's irrelevant. We have a public insurer. It should be providing public benefits. And there's no time like now where we should be dealing with these issues. And that is providing savings at a much larger scale than what ICBC has provided. I mean, I'm looking through the numbers even this morning. All state insurance. Um, basically said that there's 25% off uh, monthly auto premiums uh, for their customers. Right. Um, uh, CAA insurance, a 10% reduction for new and existing customers. Uh, Intact Financial, another insurance company, offering a 15% for people who are driving less and 75% off those who park and store their vehicles. Um, even the Ontario right. NDP, Michael, they said that they want a 50% uh, reduction on fees for the next three months. So if Mr. Eby doesn't want to listen to me at the very least, listen to his political tribe, uh, who are saying we need to be doing more.
1: Okay, so these are uh, the cuts and rebates that private insurance companies have announced in other provinces. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
8: Okay. So, uh, know, look, look yeah. this is not a debate about public and private. I think, as, as you've seen, uh, the opposition has worked very well and closely with the government to making sure we get these programs out to the public and implemented it as quickly as possible. And we've done that through various programs within federal and provincial government. But when you look at ICBC, it's been quiet. They haven't said much. And when you expected with that press conference yesterday, something would be coming out, yeah. And nothing really
1: at the end of the day. Well, especially after uh, Premier John Horgan, kind of hyped it earlier in the week. I think I kind of raised expectations that people were going to get some real help, real relief, not waiving your cancellation fee. Because when you take a look at the traffic patterns in British Columbia, ICBC has got to be saving a ton of money. Reduce traffic, reduce collisions. That is the biggest expense they got at ICBC when people get in an accident and they file a claim. This is it their biggest biggest is. cost pressure.
8: Yeah, you just look outside the window look at any major roads. You know, there's lot there's less traffic uh, out on the road. I did some back of the napkin math yesterday. Basically, ICBC pulls in about five point nine to six billion dollars in revenue every single year. You draw, divide that by three hundred sixty five days a year, it comes up to about sixty million dollars per day. On March eighteenth, the province announced a state of emergency. So since then and if you average it about 16 million dollars of revenue per day we're about just under half a billion dollars in revenue since the state of emergency has been declared that the ICBC has collected yeah. I'm not saying return hundred percent of it I'm saying well, give no. British Columbia some of that money back okay right? that's a simple back the nap and math there
1: okay speaking of jazz Joe Hull, he's the liberal ICBC critic now to be to be fair to them uh- ICBC is saying that, or David Eby is saying that they're doing a a deeper analysis on the traffic patterns and the potential savings that ICBC is experiencing right now, and there may be likely more to come. So, you know, ICBC and Eby will maybe announce a rebate later, so, you know... I just think, though, that this is, like you said, has been going on for so long, we, we could have give, given people a break right now. Have a listen to this. This is David Eby again, once again, speaking this morning to Simi Sarah, and here he is talking about ICBC's plan to get back to normal.
2: Yeah,
0: just because you're deferring the payments doesn't mean the payments go away. So at the end of the 90 days, you still would owe that insurance money to ICBC. So uh, for people who have difficulty paying at the end of the 90 days, Um, And it is currently 90 days. I mean, obviously, we don't know how long these restrictions are going to be in place. But at the end of the 90 days, you can call ICBC and arrange a repayment schedule for those 90 days while your insurance was on hold. You don't have to pay the entire amount on day 91.
1: Okay. What he's talking about there is a previously announced measure, Jazz Johal, that people could delay paying their ICBC premiums for 90 days if they've been impacted by the pandemic. But the thing is, but you got to pay that back later. So it's not like they're giving you a rebate. They're just saying, we'll delay the bill, we'll, but you can pay the bill later. Your thoughts?
8: Yeah, here, the reality is, last week, uh, midweek, so about seven to nine days ago, we had insurance companies across North America, Canadian and American, saying we're going to provide rebates uh, to uh, our customers uh, that uh, we do business with. Here we are, nine days later, on a Friday, and Mr. Eb is talking about deferring and having to pay that money back or that yeah. they're doing more analysis. All Every right. single day, Mr. Eb and ICBC slow-walk this program. Every single day, they add another $16 million to the coppers of ICBC. So it pays for them to slow-walk this. Why is it that insurance companies across North America have already announced rebates and they promise to return some of that money back to consumers, while here ICBC is doing yet another study? Right? Okay, here's, Every okay. day they slow walk this, it's $16 million bucks. You put a week in as a talk show host at CKNW, no, by the end of that week, ICBC's probably pulled in close to $100 million in profit.
1: Continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's affecting your wallet. ICBC yesterday announced if you cancel your auto insurance, if you're not driving anymore, uh, they will waive the cancellation fee, 30 bucks when you cancel your ICBC, big deal. Uh, they should be doing more than that. Here's E.B. again, the the uh, attorney general responsible for ICBC, speaking to Simi this morning about the good news and bad news at ICBC.
0: The, the good news is obviously reduced traffic and reduced collisions, uh, and that is the biggest expense associated with car insurance. When people have accidents, they need repairs or they make claims related to injuries. Uh, and uh, the, there is certainly bad news. I mean, when people are canceling their insurance and uh and when there are ICBC's investments that help subsidize rates uh, dr- drop dramatically in value, and when ICBC has one-time expenses to operate during the crisis, uh, those have impacts, too. So we want to see it all together. We're obviously being cautious with ICBC's finances for obvious reasons.
1: Okay, you're saying that the bad news is people cancel their auto insurance. That obviously reduces revenue to ICBC. Uh, the stock market damage uh, is hurting ICBC, too, with their uh, savings uh, plan over there, the money they've got. Uh, stocked up and that is uh, that is very sensitive to changes in uh the stock market for sure jazz joe hall liberal critic for icbc is my guest your call 604-280-9898 is the number to call star 9898 toll free on your cell let's go to your calls right now hi dave
6: hi mike uh yeah it's a pretty underwhelming uh announcement i have to agree um I think ICBC should literally, you know, take some uh, statements from people. If they're not driving, they should immediately cut their their expense by 50% at least because just because they're not driving daily, commuting and whatnot, they still may need their vehicle for, uh, you know, trips to the grocery store oh, yeah, and, and essentials, right. of course, right? Yeah, so yeah. cancelling the insurance is not uh, an option for a lot of people. I, I think it's... Uh, Pretty underwhelming, and I think it's, uh, you know, indicative of some of the, uh, uh municipal, provincial, and federal response to this. Uh, a lot of it's lackluster. Um, and I just think that's, that's just another indication of how poorly planned and poorly thought out David Eby's plan is. Completely poor
1: okay dave thank you for the call i think he raises a good point jazz joe hall in pointing out that you know eb is saying oh woe is woe is us you know people are canceling their auto insurance so that's going to be less revenue to icbc how many people are canceling their insurance i mean it can't be it can't be that many i mean you yeah. might be working from home but like the caller said you still need your car most people do yeah and i think you know the caller is a very good point it, when you have to go in and
8: cancel, you, when you have to add more barriers for people, there's less chance they're going to cancel. And that's the other thing. ICBC isn't making it easy either. Yes, they waive the cancellation fee, but what if we took some of those dollars that they've been pulling in every single day of sixteen million million and just say, an across-the-board cut of 15 to 20%? Something yeah. of that sort where you actually put money back in, in the pockets of people. And those that want to cancel can cancel. Right. And I've said before, this is a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic If there's a need for public benefit, it is right now. We know the benefits of a public health care system. Right now, I want to see the benefits also of a public insurer, and they've fallen short in regards to that ideal, I think, more than anything else. Okay, star
1: 9898, toll-free on your cell phone. Back to your calls. Hi, Sean.
4: Hey, um, your previous guest gave us a good nugget of information. It's like, what if we had a declaration for ICB saying, listen, either you... You know, do what the private uh, insurance companies are doing and give us our savings, or we'll all go to our broker and get recreational. And I wonder how much money a person would save if they switched their insurance from recreational, because I personally only use my car to go to the grocery store. So I think that would fall, I would fall under that category where it would be okay. Well, and at the, same, at the same time, maybe give us a retro, you know, you know, you can get the savings from when this whole thing started. Give us the uh, recreational insurance and how much money would a person save?
1: Well, Sean, that's a good call. Thank you for that. And Richard Zussman, the global news reporter earlier, had had raised that point, Jazz, that, look, if you have lost your job, you're not driving to work anymore. Maybe you're just using your car, like the caller said, to go to the store. Hey, like, talk to your broker. Maybe you would qualify for a cheaper ICBC product if you're not driving to work every day. Your thoughts?
8: No, absolutely. I would encourage that. There may be opportunities where you can go in and reduce those costs. But, you know, once again, you've got to go to your broker and people are busy. They're, you know, schooling their kids at home. They're doing other things. Yes, you have to make the effort to do all that. What I'm saying is they shouldn't have to do that. You should be able, as a public insurer, announce this and say, look, we're going to give you a 10, 15, 20%, whatever they can afford, but make it tangible. Make it so people can see that, look, you are saving dollars at this very important time. And most importantly, get money back into the in the pockets of people because right. there are people who are hurting out there people have lost their jobs there's mortgages to pay rents to yeah. pay leases to pay and that's what we should be worrying about at the end of the day is how much money are we leaving in the pockets of british columbians right now today because this really is a day-to-day week-to-week thing some people have afforded their rent the first time they're going to have difficulty coming coming in on may 1st and there are other bills coming as well okay. so this is it has to be done now that challenges now to challenges today, and that's why I was quite disappointed in ICBC's announcement yesterday, because this isn't about politics for me, let's, it's just making sure we get money in the, in the, in the pockets of
1: people immediately. Let's squeeze, in, let's squeeze in one more call here in the minute we have left. Hi, Blake.
8: Ah, it'll go to your broker. That's a joke. I see you can't even
4: get into your brokers in the West End here. They got you lined uh-huh. up like as if you were going to save on foods or something. But anyhow, there's another loophole there. Real, tell my, me what it is real quick. Okay. I have my insurance um, with Bell Air Direct, half part of it, and you don't get any discounts. I just found oh, out when okay, I renewed, Blake, even okay. under 5,000 Ks.
1: Blake, thank you for the call. Jazz Joe Hall, thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike.
8: In the next front in our war, we're calling opening up America again. And that's what we're doing. We're opening up our country. And we have to do that. America wants to be open. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay, we're having some audio problems there. That was the uh, voice of U.S. President Donald Trump yesterday speaking about his plan to reopen the American economy. The president uh, presenting basically a roadmap uh, for state governors to reopen the economy in stages. He calls it a phased and deliberate approach to restore normal activity in places where testing have seen a decrease in COVID-19 cases. We're going to talk about this now on uh, how this is going to work potentially in the United States as they try to get the economy jump started here uh, with this uh, pandemic still inflicting so much damage. And then we're going to talk about Canada and the plan to reopen the economy here. And should Canada take a look at Trump's plan and maybe uh, replicate it here? My guest is J.P. Maroney. He's a business and economic analyst. He's based in Florida with Harbor City Capital. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. J.P., thanks a lot for doing this.
2: Hey, Mike. Good to be on the show.
1: Thank you for coming on. Let's play another clip here of the president. Hopefully this one is uh, works uh, not like the first one there. It was a little rocky. But here is Trump yesterday uh talking uh, about getting the american economy working again
8: we must have a working economy and we want to get it back very
1: very quickly and that's what's going to happen i believe it will boom it will boom this is what trump wants he wants a big bang with the economy back up and running jp what do you think about the plan the president laid out there yesterday
2: Well, I do believe that our nation needs to get back to work and back to doing business. I also know that we've got to take the right precautions without a a clear plan for making sure that this doesn't spread again and spin back up. You know, it it is concerning. But here in America, obviously, the American people, there were, what, five million additional new unemployment claims in the most recent report from the Labor Department and uh, as of yesterday, the government announced that the stimulus package that was supposed to bail out a lot of small business owners is out of money. It's 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 gone bust already. So there's a lot of people. I you know I even heard from a, a colleague the other day that they applied three and a half weeks ago, and they they have been approved but still have not received their money. And so I think anything that we can do in a measured and careful way to get people back on the streets and back in the stores and back in the businesses, serving customers and delivering on on their promises and being able to put some money in the till, uh, the faster the better.
1: Okay, speaking to J.P. Moroney, he's a business and economic analyst in Florida. We're talking about Trump's plan to reopen the American economy and. Can we do the same thing here in Canada? This would be a phased-in approach, JP, as outlined by the White House yesterday. Phase one uh, would uh, be relaxing some of the restrictions around social distancing. So maybe some restaurants, uh, sports venues, places of worship, maybe they could begin to operate while maintaining strict physical distancing protocols. That would be in phase one. But it would only be in states where... They've got the scientific evidence that the virus is under control. I, I wonder what what is your situation there in Florida? I know I know Florida has had its troubles here with this virus, with six hundred and eighty six deaths. The last number I saw for Florida is is Florida ready to open up again right now?
2: You know, I here's what I think. I think even if the governors uh, are given the go ahead and the governors begin to open these businesses back up and the doors back up. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are just going to stay home because they don't believe that there is a real mitigation against risk of spreading the virus. But, you know, I was looking at the president's plan. Obviously, the travel and tourism industry here in um, Florida is taking a huge hit. I live in Melbourne, Florida, and we're about 20 minutes south of Port Canaveral. The ships are all parked there. And we've obviously seen a massive, massive impact on that industry, not just the employees, not just the companies themselves, but the spill and uh, trickle-down effect of all the, imagine the stores and the businesses that depend on those tourists getting off those ships and buying their supplies and eating at restaurants and everything else, and then the companies that provide the fuel for these ships and, and on and on and on. But I was noticing that you know, movie theaters, for example, would be allowed to reopen in the first Phases under yeah. under this so I, I don't know how you make a decision without people just taking personal responsibility to keep their distance perhaps wear a mask not necessarily a mask to prevent you know like um, getting something but prevent them from giving something if they might yeah. have it um, coughing on someone else or sneezing or whatever on someone else and taking good precautions of washing hands and that sort of thing There's this teeter-totter effect I think we all go through logically and emotionally where we think, yeah is it really that bad? And then, you know, I have a plumber that was doing work for us about a month and a half ago. I just found out the reason he hasn't come back out here and done more work for us is his ex-wife – is infected with coronavirus his two children are infected and now he's been infected by it via his children and his wow. ex-wife is on a ventilator you know oh. so this is very real stuff and people are, are definitely going to have to take the precautions but i do believe our businesses have got to have a, a fighting chance at, at putting some money in the bank
1: okay speaking to jp Moroni here about the american plan to reopen the u.s economy and we're going to talk about the canadian plan uh, after the next break But have a listen to this Here's another uh, clip uh, of the pre- of the president speaking yesterday And here he is explaining how This plan to get the American economy going again Would be done one state at a time It'll depend on the situation in each state Here's Trump
8: Our approach outlines three phases In restoring our economic life We are not opening all at once but one careful step at a time and some states will be able to open up sooner than others some states
1: are not in the kind of trouble that others okay what do you think of that jp i mean which states do you think could open up for business and which ones are going to be uh, struggling a lot longer
2: Well, I can't speak to the medical profession and and the guys who are making those decisions, but my assumption would be we have to look at where we believe that we're past the flattening of the curve and that we're on the downside of that, and that the types of businesses that would open up would not put people at further risk of reigniting the spread of this. Um, But, you know, looking at the president's plan, I think it makes sense. I think that you're talking about Canada. I think we all are sitting here wondering when is this going to come to an end and we get back to normal. I was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday and he said, I think there's a reset on what new normal means in our society, but I do believe that people are going to come out of their their caves, come out of their houses with their credit cards and their wallets and their checkbooks in their hands with a lot of pent-up demand. I believe that people are going to buy products and services, but I also truly believe that Many industries are going to be changed forever. For example, think about how many companies have now come to the realization that their people can actually work from home and be productive. Think about the companies that have now decided that their folks can have meetings instead of getting on a red eye and going across the country right. to have a meeting for a day or two, or even the conference industry which now has figured out that we can hold online webcasts and webinars and still convey the information and knowledge in an effective way. I believe that we're going to be changed forever from this.
1: J.P., thanks for coming on with your analysis.
2: My pleasure. Anytime. Okay,
1: I appreciate it. J.P. Maroney, he is a business and economic analyst, he is with Harbor City Capital. They're based in Florida. Here's, of course, is everything with Trump controversial. Like you get some, a lot of support for that plan, especially from, uh, Republicans in the United States. I think this is a good idea. Other state governors pushing back on the plan saying it. Look, if you reopen too early and you get a second wave of this virus, you risk destroying all the progress that's already been made and all the sacrifices uh, that people have, have made as well in the last a few weeks the governor of new uh, new jersey for example yesterday saying if you open up too early it's like pouring gasoline on a fire you got to put the fire out first when you take a look at some of the worst hit states south of the border places like new york new jersey uh, florida louisiana i don't know i think it's going to be a long time before they're anywhere back to normal and reopening other states in the U.S. where the virus has inflicted less damage, maybe they can reopen sooner. Let's talk about the plan for Canada here now. Can we learn anything about this plan in the United States? My guest is Goldie Hyder. He is the president of the Business Council of Canada. Goldie, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for
7: having me. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the uh, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic in Canada on the economy and on business. Can you give us a big picture of how bad this is right now?
7: Well, it's bad. Capital B, capital A, capital D. And we are in unprecedented territory here. And any semblance of uh, where we were just a short while ago in terms of having such a pretty good balance sheet, uh, pretty good debt to GDP ratio, as the finance minister regularly reminded us, that's all out the window now. Uh, we're probably approaching a couple hundred billion dollars in deficit alone our debt is uh, increasing now on the upside there's pretty low interest rates so uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to um, chip away at that when we come out of this but the key now is how do we get out of this
1: What what did you think of the plan that trump laid out yesterday
7: well, I mean, uh, it, you know, it, uh, it um, uh, certainly had clarity to it in terms of some of the steps that uh, that they were being considered. I uh, I never know whether the plan is one that he's going to endorse or not endorse later, but at least the uh, the people who put it together seem to have thought it through quite well. Uh, it seems to be guided by health and uh, medical concerns as it sh- as it should be. I thought some of the barometers and indicators that are there are interesting for us to consider in terms of the need to show a 14-day decline uh, right. in uh, in cases and a 14-day decline in, in deaths. Uh, which suggests that there's still a long ways for many places in the U.S. to go, and obviously some places here in Canada wouldn't meet that anytime soon. So we do need to be guided by the medical and health guidance. Then uh, I think the other thing about that plan, which will apply to us here as well in Canada, is while there isn't a one size fit all, we are going to need to have some consistencies in the way things are being applied. I mean, you, know, you if you're a multinational company or you're or a national company, it'd be hard to have some of your workers go back because one province decides that, you know their school might be open, and somebody else decides that their transit system may be closed and you have to have some consistency here uh, very important from a supply chain perspective uh, we'll see how that plan gets uh, uh, executed the key is timing as your previous guest was saying and you were saying in your introduction you get this wrong and it'll be a massive setback and uh, oh. if there were to be a second shutdown
1: yeah right i mean it would what would and then what would all the sacrifices be for you know i mean we've done a great job i think in canada certainly of bending that curve down. Certainly, I think people are very proud here in British Columbia of the numbers that have been driven down here. But, man, if you make a mistake of opening things up too quickly and you trigger a second wave of infections, it could be even worse than the first wave, then it's kind of like all your sacrifices are for nothing. So I think officials have got to be very cautious here. But if if you take a look at that American plan, and I I think you made a good point there, that the need to show in in this U.S. phased-in approach that Trump laid out yesterday, there is a requirement to show a 14 day decline in the number of cases and the number of deaths before you can start going into this phased in approach. I'm not sure many states are in that, in that position right now or how many provinces are in that position right now. Like in your, in your estimation and your analysis, how far away are we from some return to normalcy? What's your hope?
7: Well, look, I've always used sort of June 1 as a, as a date uh, where I think would be a, an opportunity to assess where we are at. It's pretty consistent with, with what the governor of the Bank of Canada uh, indicated just uh, yesterday, and I believe in his appearance before a, a committee uh, here in Ottawa. Uh, that, you know, sometime in May would be an optimistic, uh, late May, early June would be an optimistic date. To shoot for. Uh, I think BC uh, is an interesting uh, place to start the process, right? I mean, you may well be, you're sort of first in, you might be first out. Um, New Brunswick is, uh, is also suggesting it's getting pretty close. Saskatchewan's talking about it. We're going to need the provinces to kind of play that traditional incubator role, if you will, and start allowing um, a slow startup where you can test and you can see, uh, you know, uh, how's it going and what's working, what's not working, and what you do may be instructive. To how other provinces uh, in other country in 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 the rest of the country respond, you know, we've got some pretty key members in British Columbia, uh, you know, in London Drugs and Telus and, and Tech and uh, HSBC and others who are very consumer uh, consumer oriented or employ a lot of people. You will represent good tests in terms of the protocols that need to be in place, the ability to test and trace and track that is going to be necessary. And then, uh, in the event that the surge starts, how quickly do you nip it, or do we deny it and let it go on and 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 make things worse. So I think BC will be a very interesting experiment along this, uh, this front. It's certainly something I'm speaking to premiers across the country about uh, in making sure we align well between governments, businesses, and labor, because this, this has to be done well. If it's not, as I said, uh, it could be catastrophic on multiple levels.
1: We just got one minute left here. You got your finger on the pulse of business in our country. You're talking to CEOs and businesses across the country every day. What, what is your perspective on how, how well businesses typically are weathering this storm?
7: Well, again, look, it's, it all depends, right, on how, how much capacity you have on your balance sheet to whether it' the issue I hear most from people beyond safety and well-being of their own people, of course, is liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. I think governments have worked hard to try and get that addressed the best that they can in unprecedented uh, timing. Uh, there are tweaks that are still necessary. Many sectors are still waiting. We had a bit of an announcement on energy today, but aviation, retail, uh, you know, and, and others, our are, are, are tourism comes to mind, you know, Rocky Mountaineers and BC as well, uh, these are all companies that need liquidity and um, uh, the employment considerations are key here. And, and you know what, Mike, it's, uh, it may be still early days in this whole thing. We'll see where we okay. get to, but, uh, but hopefully it's, um, it's uh, you know, best case scenario emerges for in all our sakes.
1: Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. All the best. Thank Jeff. you. Goldie Hyder, he is the president of the Business Council of British Columbia. Let's talk a little bit about uh, managing your own personal finances through the pandemic, my my guest is Satveer Gill. He is the director of wealth management with the Gill Group, and Scotia McLeod. Satveer, thank you for coming on.
3: Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me, and hello to all the
0: listeners.
1: Thanks, thanks a lot for doing it. We're going through unprecedented times. The the stock market's on a roller coaster. I'm afraid to look at my own RSP. I don't even want to know how much it's gone down. But what is your advice to people out there who are looking at their savings here being affected?
3: Yeah, Mike, it is uh, unprecedented times to to say the least. Uh, People have been impacted. It doesn't matter if you are invested in the markets or not in the markets. For, you know, in your case or or people that are listening, it's really, really important to stay focused on purpose and what it is that you're trying to accomplish within your accounts and your retirement accounts. How far are you away from retirement? You know, what does that look like? Do you have a financial plan? What does that look like in terms of rates of returns, expectations, you know, your asset allocation in your own accounts, and just being focused on the long term and know that, you know, we're going to get through this. It's going to take some time, but we are going to get through this. And as long as you've had a plan in place and you know what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish with the help of an advisor or on your own, you know, we're going to get through this. It's just don't
1: panic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the panic is is the one thing I think maybe some people might be feeling, the anxiety, the worry. And what if you have a client who, who comes to you and says, oh, man, man this thing is just going to be brutal. I think we're going to go into, into into a deep depression here. This is going to be terrible. Sell everything. Just sell <laughs> everything. You would not advise that, right?
3: You know, Everything we do is goal-based, so we've got plans and we've got the accounts uh, managed in such a way that each for each person, and each client, it's very specific in terms of what we're doing for them. So we don't get a lot of those calls, but yeah, people are anxious. Um, would I tell an individual to sell everything? No, absolutely not. Just, just know what you own and be in the stronger names. Just because things are down doesn't mean that they're always going to come back. There are places within the market and things that you can do, again, your own personal circumstances, to, to benefit from this uh, and thrive from it, just like we've seen in, in previous um, drops, whether it's 2009 or after 9-11 or the tech bubble and those types of things. So there are things we can look back at and say, well, if we would have panicked and done this, you would have missed out on all of the you know the, the gains, the potential gains. And it really is time in the market. If you look at all the research, if you miss the top 10 days within the market, you're way far behind. If you miss the top 10 declines in the market, you're still going to be much better ahead. So it's you need to just have time in the market, not necessarily try to time the market.
1: Speaking to Satvir Gill about your personal finances here during this pandemic, what about uh, if people are looking at their own finances and thinking like, should I continue saving? Maybe I should be more worried about paying down debt that I owe? Um what about people who are carrying debt, and should that be a concern at a time of low interest rates and governments racking up record debt levels and deficits? Should people be worried if they owe, mu- if they owe money right now?
3: Fair question. Um, you know, if your income stream is still continuing on through this crisis and you've been able to work from home and still been able to, to generate income on a regular basis as you were before, I mean, you're, you're okay. You're not going to have to change much in terms of your life, lifestyle. But on the other hand, if you haven't and you don't have the three months savings that everyone always advises, or you don't have uh, you know ways to get through it, yeah, debt is going to be an issue. And you've seen the government come out and help, and the banks are you know deferring mortgage payments and working with small business owners to defer payments on their pay on, on interest and, and things like that. There's lots of programs out there. The government is here. I mean, they've stepped yeah. in on both sides of the border and said, hey, We're here to back you, whether it's the banks, whether it's business, whether it's individuals. And because of that, you're seeing some confidence in the market and people should have some confidence in the sense like, okay, yeah, I may be over leveraged, but I can get through this. Um, If someone is over leveraged, they should definitely not wait to have those conversations with their bank and see what they can do and what needs to be done um, to help them out through this. Definitely.
1: I think you should always, um, we, we got one minute here, but I think that talking, like, let's say you can't, you can't afford to pay your rent, or you're having trouble making your mortgage payment, or you're worried about your credit card bill. You should go talk to your banker, right? You should go talk to your landlord. Go talk to your credit card company and try and work something out.
3: Absolutely. You don't want to, you don't want to put your head in the sand during this, whether it's personally or in your investment portfolios. You want to be ahead of this. You want to get through this.
1: Right. Where, where can people get more information on on, on the stuff that you do?
3: Um, they can go to uh, email me at satvir.gill at scotialwealth.com. Um, you can go to the gillgroup.ca website, um, get a hold of us. You can find me on LinkedIn and, and whatever it may be. But satvir.gill at com would be the easiest. to get a hold come. of me. It's S-A-T-V-I-R dot G-I-L-L at scotialwealth.com.
1: Thanks for coming on.
3: Thanks, Mike. Alright,
1: Satvir Gill, he's the Director of Wealth Management with the Gill Group and Scotia McLeod.